Paul had left, they were criticizing and questioning his stature as an apostle. And Paul had been patient. In the first nine chapters here, he's explained his ministry. He's talked about his methods and his motives. But now in chapter 10, Paul takes the gloves off, so to speak. He becomes more aggressive. He takes on his accusers. Paul's call was legit. How dare these charlatans belittle God's work? And in these chapters, Paul holds up his fingers, his scars, and his sacrifices to prove the genuineness of his ministry. In one way, his critics were correct. Paul wasn't physically impressive. He didn't have an overwhelming persona. He wasn't Greece's greatest orator. Yet God had demonstrated his strength through Paul's weakness. It was Paul's missing fingertips, so to speak, that were God's opportunity to show himself strong on Paul's behalf. And so chapter 10 begins, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. One of the errors that the Corinthian Christians had made was to mistake meekness for weakness. Hope you don't do that. Numbers 12, verse 3, referred to Moses as the meekest man in all the earth, and yet the mighty Moses was far from weak. The Greek word translated meekness means power under restraint. It was used for a wild stallion after it had been broken. Meekness refers to a person who's been submitted to the bit and bridle of the will of God. See, Paul had approached these Corinthians gently and meekly, but his enemies had interpreted his meekness as weakness. They were saying, oh, he's kind because he has no clout. He's tender because he has no authority. They had mistaken his his humility for a lack of ability. Well, these false teachers, they said that Paul could write a mean letter, but in person he was timid. Take away his pen and he'll shriek in fear. Paul replies in verse 2, But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul is saying, if you want bold, I'll bring bold. He tried to be nice in his first letter, but they took it the wrong way. If he has to be more direct, he will. You recall the story in the Old Testament about Balaam? Do you remember that story? How Balaam beat his burrow? The problem, though, wasn't the donkey. The animal swerved to dodge an angel in the path that Balaam couldn't see. God pitied the beast of burden. And he opened his mouth, the mouth of the donkey, to rebuke Balaam. What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? In short, who's the real donkey here? I was going to use a different word, but I'll just stick with donkey. As Christians, we're called to be beasts of burden in a sense. We're servants. We bear one another's burden, do we not? But that doesn't mean that we should let folks mistreat us. Like Paul, there are times when we too should defend ourselves. Being used and abused are not synonymous. Paul loved the Corinthians. He would lay down his life to serve them, but he wasn't going to remain silent while they verbally assaulted him in his ministry. Verse 3, 
For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And here Paul explains his ministry. He didn't war according to the flesh. That is, he didn't rely on his own ingenuity. He never resorted to gimmicks or to techniques that ultimately denied the Spirit of God. He relied on God's Spirit first and foremost. He says in verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. Hey, nations don't fight nuclear wars with conventional weapons. And neither do Christians fight spiritual battles with fleshly weapons. Bright ideas and strenuous effort and human manipulations are no substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, a bank loan will alleviate your cash flow crunch, but will it corral the greed that caused your spending in the first place? A nicotine patch might help the withdrawals, but does it supply you the calm you need in, when you're under stress so that you won't smoke? A cold shower will relieve some sexual tension. But how do you conquer the lust that keeps churning in your heart? A bottle of pills will help you go to sleep at night, but will it resolve the guilty conscience that was keeping you awake? I mean, my point is, is that human remedies may do some good, but spiritual progress, permanent change, is the result of the power and the intervention of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Sin produces strongholds. You know, sin begins with a wrong choice. Then it becomes an infatuation, then a habit. Finally, it turns into an addiction. It slowly digs an inescapable rut. At first, sin enters our life at our invitation, but ultimately it outlives its welcome and it becomes extremely difficult to dislodge. It turns into a stronghold. And you can't conquer a stronghold with cleverness and manipulation. When a sin burrows its way deep into our psyche, it only gets uprooted from the inside out. It takes spiritual power to bring down a sinful stronghold. Thus, we need spiritual weapons, things like the truth of God's Word, the power of His Spirit, prayer, faith, love, the blood of Christ, the word of our testimony, the name of Jesus, fellowship with other Christians, worship, wisdom. Do you know the spiritual weapons that are available to you? They're necessary for the bringing down of strongholds. Paul says, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. See, strongholds take root and strengthen when we believe the lies of the devil, when we buy into doubts about God and listen to arguments against God. This is why Paul advises us bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. See, to level a stronghold, you have to govern your thoughts. You have to see yourself in Christ. You have to see you and life in Christ Jesus from God's perspective. And here's Paul's strategy. Bag up your thoughts. Is this what you're doing? See, the battle here is fought in our heads. We need to take charge of every wandering thought and every fickle emotion. We need to make every impulse harmonize with the truth 
that's in Christ. It's like catching butterflies. Our thoughts and feelings are like butterflies. They're flittering all over the place. That's why we need to grab them and bring them under God's will. We need to bring them in obedience to God's word. We need to train our mind to obey, not stray. Are you minding your mind? If you want to bring down the strongholds and live victoriously, you need to. For he says in verse 6, in being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul had disciplined the Corinthians. Some had repented. Others had resented it. Here Paul says, once you've reordered your thinking to obey Christ, once you've cultivated a disciplined mind, once you're living that disciplined life, then God will use you to disciple others. And then he says, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? See, the Corinthians were good at jumping to conclusions. They would size a person up before they hurt his heart. This is what they did to Paul. And we need to be careful lest we do this to others. For years, we had people that drive back and forth down McDaniel's Bridge Road. And we had one fellow throw beer bottles out into the churchyard. I never met the man, but I wanted to. At the time, Pastor Jeff was in charge of the church grounds. And he was usually the guy who would go out there and he'd pick up the bottles. He'd collect the beer bottles and then he'd dump them in the office trash can. One Sunday, an usher, he approached me after the service and he said, Pastor Sandy, we need to talk. He whispered seriously, he said, Pastor Jeff has a drinking problem. Every Sunday I'm finding beer bottles in his trash can. Obviously, he had jumped to the wrong conclusion, which is what happens when you judge only appearances. At least he handled it appropriately. He came to the proper authority rather than running around gossiping and making false accusations like the Corinthians did to Paul. Paul writes, If anyone is convinced in himself that he is in Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. See, some of the Corinthians doubted Paul's salvation. Yet if Paul wasn't in Christ, neither were they since they were saved through the gospel that Paul had preached. Verse 8, For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, but I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. The last thing Paul was into was self-promotion, but the Corinthians were forcing him to defend himself. They'd accused him of writing intimidating letters. Paul's ministry was never to bully. It was always to build up. Yet to continue to do so, he needed to silence these critics. Verse 10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. In other words, he's mighty with the pen, but he's wimpy and tongue-tied in person. And there may have been some truth to this claim. There was a third century novel entitled The Acts of Paul and Hecla, which gives us an interesting physical description of the Apostle Paul. It reads, He was small in size with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, ball-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. In other words, you were impressed by his 
spirituality, not his physicality. Other traditions said that Paul talked with a lisp. As far as his physical features were concerned, he wasn't much to look at or to listen to. And this was as far as the false teachers were able to discern. They were all about how he appeared, not his substance. I'll never forget the local radio station. I won't mention which one it was, but we asked them if they would air our radio program chapter by chapter. Well, the station manager, he, he called me back up and he said, no, he said, we can't do that. He said, we don't like your voice. Oh, really? He says, it's not radio quality. Well, I didn't argue with him. It's probably not radio quality if you want to know the truth. I'm just thankful that the quality of my voice hasn't limited God. Because now God has used that program all over the world. In essence, this is what the Corinthians were saying about Paul. His voice isn't radio quality. Oh, his content is okay, but he needs to work on his presentation. You see, the Corinthians are like a lot of people today. They like pastors who entertain, pastors who are flamboyant. They were fixated on the celebrity pastors, those with the air of success. To them, slick was preferable to substance. It was flash over faith. It was style over truth. Warren Wiersbe tells of a pastor he heard once who spoke so eloquently, but his message was void of anything biblical. A friend next to him summed up the man's sermon with a verse, 1 Kings 19 verse 11, the Lord was not in the wind. A pastor needs to have substance, not just hot air. Verse 11, let such a person consider this, That what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be in deed when we are present. When Paul arrives in person, he's going to show them how bold he can be. After his appearance, they'll wish he had written a letter. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. Now, one of the challenges with Christian ministry is the difficulty we have in measuring our progress. It's not like a business where you can check sales or check profit margin. You know, a pastor can faithfully sow the seed of God's word, but that's no guarantee how fruitful he's going to be. In Jesus' parable of the sower, he teaches us to expect a 25% success rate. I mean, some of the seed never takes roots. Other seed is choked out by the weeds. Still, some of the seed gets burned up in the sun. Only a quarter of the seed takes root and bears fruit. If your business is widgets, you can measure how many you make, how much they sell for, at what price, etc., etc. There's a bottom line, so to speak. Not so in Christian ministry, and this is why it was foolish for Paul to compare himself with others. Verse 12, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Comparison is foolish. But many Christians and pastors and churches succumb. How many people did you have on Sunday? How big is your building? How many... This or that do you have? We compare each other to one another. And Paul says, this is not wise. 
Remember, much of Christian ministry goes on below the surface. It can't be seen. It's never measured. A pastor can be faithful to disciple the 20 people God gives him, or he can be lethargic in a church of 2,000. It's faithfulness, not numbers, that constitutes success. It says in verse 13, We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. Notice God defines success not by the volume of the ministry you do, but by how well you handle what you've been assigned. We all have a sphere in which we're called to be faithful. Your sphere certainly includes your family, your kids, maybe your neighbors. What is your sphere of ministry that God's called you to? Paul says that his sphere also included the Corinthians. And God would rather us all be thorough in what he gives us to do than to expand our ministry and do it sloppily. Paul writes, For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Paul's goal was to be faithful in the scope of what God had given him. And despite what his opponents said that included, Paul said that it included Corinth. That Corinth also was part of Paul's parish. Verse 15, when Paul came to Corinth, he was not boasting of things beyond measure. That is, in other men's labors. Paul never took credit for what God did through someone else. Paul wasn't a glory grabber. He pioneered unreached areas. But as soon as he was gone, false teachers, so-called Judaizers would enter in. And they would take over the churches that the apostle had started. And understand, this is how the cults operate today. They don't target unreached people. The Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons, they prey on new Christians and they spend their deception on folks who aren't spiritually grounded. Paul said this is what he didn't do. But having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Paul was into planting new churches in new areas. He was a pioneer. He went where no man dared to go before. And Paul wanted the Corinthians to mature so that he could move on to plant new churches elsewhere. Verse 17. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And here he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. Glory not in wisdom or might or riches, but glory in the Lord. You know, often we Christians assume that spiritual success means successful service. Spend more time, do more stuff, and God will be pleased. But not necessarily. According to Jeremiah 9, true success has more to do with knowing the Lord than serving the Lord. You recall Martha? She was running around frantically in the kitchen serving a meal for Jesus. While Mary was just sitting at Jesus' feet, spending time in his presence, worshiping her king. And it was Jesus, he commended Mary, not Martha. He said, Mary has chosen that good part. It's about knowing the Lord, not just serving the Lord. Well, chapter 10 closes 
For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. You know, pastors, next week we'll go to this pastor's conference and there'll be pastors patting each other on the back. Christians like to get together and pass out rewards and boast of their accomplishments. But understand, all that really matters is to one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. In the final analysis, that alone constitutes true success in ministry. That is the ultimate measurement. Well, chapter 11 begins. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. Now realize Paul's line of thinking from this point onward is a line of thinking foreign to him. He doesn't usually talk about himself. Usually Paul shunned the spotlight. But here he turns it on himself. He's forced to defend his ministry. Though necessary, Paul refers to it as a little folly. He says, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul wasn't jealous of the Corinthians. He was jealous for Jesus' sake. His Lord deserved a loyal bride. What if you were the best man at your friend's wedding and you saw the bride sneaking off with somebody else? You'd hurt for your friend, wouldn't you? You'd feel his betrayal. And this is how Paul felt when a Christian was disloyal to Jesus. He says, For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul viewed himself as a father, the Corinthian believers as a daughter, and Jesus as the bridegroom. In Paul's day, it was a dad's obligation to safeguard his daughter's purity until she was presented to her groom. And it was Paul's job to watch over the Corinthians and to turn them over to Jesus, pure and undefiled. As your pastor, this is how I see my responsibility. I'm a spiritual dad over a large family. And I'm concerned if you stray. This is why I often take a protective posture. I want to one day present you to your bridegroom, pure and undefiled. Verse 3. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul was right to worry, for Satan is skillful. Ephesians 6 verse 11 warns us about the wiles of the devil. You recall the serpent's ploy in the Garden of Eden. He did three things. He caused them to doubt God's word. He said, has God indeed said? He puts that little bit of doubt in your mind. And then he denied God's word. You will not surely die. And then he distorted God's word. Oh, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But he painted it as a desirable thing. It wasn't. Sadly, Eve swallowed the lie and she ate the forbidden fruit. We've all been suffering spiritual heartburn as a result. Let's stay true, Paul says, to the simplicity that's in Christ. A wise old pastor once gave some good advice to his young apprentice. He said, preach a full gospel, Christ and nothing less. A plain gospel, Christ and nothing more. And a pure gospel, Christ and nothing else. This is what we need, the simplicity that's in Christ. 
For he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached. Or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or if a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul's worried about their lack of discernment. Just because someone says this is Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that it's the Jesus of the Bible. Just because someone says this is the gospel doesn't necessarily mean that it's the gospel that the New Testament preaches. These Corinthians had already proven how gullible they were. They were putting up with false teachers who had lied to them. Paul was worried about them. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. See, the false apostles in Corinth, they went by the title, Most Eminent Apostle. Or literally, Super Apostle. Paul laughs. You got nothing on me. He was more of an apostle than any of them. He says, for even though I am untrained in speech, that is, he, he hadn't gone to their oratorical schools, yet I am not in knowledge. And this should tip us off as to how to evaluate a pastor. What gets said is far more important than how it's said. You can speak in an eloquent way and say nothing. I've heard it put, the test of a preacher is that his congregation goes away saying, not what a lovely sermon, but I will obey. God could care less about whether the sermon sounds good if it doesn't do any good. He says, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. The Corinthians had been there. Paul had been there among the Corinthians. He had proven himself. They knew him. Verse 7, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? This was one of the accusations they were hurling at Paul. You see, while living in Corinth, Paul had worked a secular job. He had made tents to support himself. He refused to draw a salary from the Corinthians, lest anyone accuse him of being in it for the money. But instead of recognizing the integrity in this this approach, the false teachers, they were saying that Paul didn't draw a salary because he didn't deserve one. That he lacked the credentials of a true pastor and apostle. Paul explains to them in verse 8. He said, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. He took finances that had been earmarked for other churches and used them to support his work among the Corinthians. Verse 9. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. The churches of Macedonia, Berea, and Philippi, and Thessaloniki, they supported Paul while he was at work in Corinth. See, his approach had been so noble. I'm not going to draw a salary from you. I'm going to work and support myself. How noble is that? How could the Corinthians have turned on him and now doubted him? I wonder about this today. I know pastors who love God. They love their congregations. And they make personal sacrifices to serve, and yet they struggle to make ends meet. Whereas I know other pastors who dominate and manipulate people and use them for their own ends. And yet the church, for some reason, treats them like royalty. The pompous preacher is loved more than the man of God. It's a tragedy. This is what happened in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah 5 verse 31 reads, 
The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. That's what's sad. When the people put up with it. You know, I've I've discovered over the years that fleshly people like fleshly, flashy, forceful pastors. They don't like men that remind them to walk humbly and to serve sacrificially. Paul tells us in verse 10, As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because Because I do not love you? God knows. This is why Paul feels compelled to prove himself to this church, because he loves them so deeply. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. Paul's going to boast, he's going to defend himself in order to silence the accusations of his critics. Verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. The false teachers called themselves super apostles. In reality, they were pseudo apostles. They were bogus. They majored in deceit. And Paul says it shouldn't surprise the Corinthians to see Christianity feigned. Don't let it surprise you. He explains why. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. You remember, Jesus referred to Satan as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Here Paul calls him an angel of light. Shakespeare put it, the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Satan is a master of disguise. He goes by a million aliases. He has a zillion fake IDs and phony passports. He hates to be identified. Don't expect Satan to appear to you in red leotards and horns and a little pitchfork and a pointed tail. Satan is too sophisticated to come to you as you would expect. The element of surprise is his most effective weapon. Expect the enemy to attack wearing a short skirt and a low-cut blouse. Or as a father figure, an old guy you think you can trust. Or he's the so-called friend who tells you that he has the stuff that's going to help you kick your depression. Just take two of these and your problems will be gone. Expect Satan to offer you a deal so sweet that you'll almost miss the fine print down at the bottom. You'll almost overlook that one catch. Is it any wonder that the best commercials are the beer commercials? Is it any wonder? They're the most creative. They're the most, in, they draw you in. They're, they're the most effective. Is it any wonder that alcohol has the cleverest commercials? They always show the beautiful people in beautiful places, et cetera, et cetera. I wish for once a beer commercial would tell you the truth. Just tell you the truth. Tell it like it is. If it it was an honest beer commercial, it would look like this right here. Carp's signature summer ales. When friends gather, tradition Craftsmanship and quality blend together into an affordable brain and liver poison we're sure you'll love. Because it's chemically dependence forming in a portion of the population, every bottle of carps 
is guaranteed to kill enough of your brain to impair your fine motor control, inhibitions, and judgment, but not enough to kill you, unless you drink enough of it. And actually, it's not even that much you have to drink. It tastes okay. How do we do it? We combine quality ingredients with small animals called yeast and a slurry of grain and water. They eat it and poop out the poison. Smooth, authentic poison. Then we seal them in a dark, airless container so they drown in their own poop, which we drink. Their rotting corpses form the bubbles. That's addictive liver brain poison the way your grandfather used to order it. My family's proud of our long tradition of making fine gut poison. Carps, all natural. It'll make you feel different than you usually do, in a good way. But then the next day, it'll feel like you were poisoned, which you were. So don't be surprised or complain to us about it. I'm Roger, by the way. For once, just give me an honest beer commercial. That's all, that's all I'm asking for. Well, Paul concludes his caution on appearance, verse 15. He says, therefore, it is no great thing if, his, if Satan, his, Satan's ministers are also transformed into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. In other words, if Satan can appear as an angel of light, his demons can appear with reverend attached to their name. It can even appear as false apostles and bogus pastors. Verse 16, I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. Again, for the sake of his defense, Paul is indulging in a practice very foreign to him, and that is boasting. Verse 18, Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. He's stooping to the level of the Corinthians, engaging in what they can understand. They, they boasted themselves. Now he's, he's trying to speak their language. Read the next statement with sarcasm. He says, For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you. If one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. You know, the Corinthians tolerated exploitive practices from these false apostles. They allowed themselves to be entrapped by legalism, to be taken advantage of financially, to be intimidated socially, to even succumb to physical abuse. And it always amazes me how people will put up with garbage from spiritual leaders. Why would anyone put up with such shenanigans in the name of God? Paul is amazed at how gullible the Corinthians were. And he's angry at these diabolical men who are passing themselves off as apostles of Christ. Verse 21, he says, To our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. Again, notice his sarcasm. His critics had accused him of being weak. He's saying, yes, I'm glad I'm too weak to abuse people like these false apostles. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Paul will match his credentials with anyone. These false apostles have nothing on him. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Despite what they claimed, 
Paul was willing to match their qualifications. You know, Paul's love for the Corinthians reminds me of a man who once asked his wife, he said, Honey, did you ever, did you ever love anyone before me? His wife thought a bit. And then she replied, she said, No, darling. I once respected a man for his great intelligence. I admired another man for his remarkable courage. And I was captivated by yet another man for his good looks and charm. But you, darling, well, how else can I explain it except love? (laughs) What motivated Paul to love these foolish and fickle Corinthians? It could only have been the love of God. Paul has reminded the church of his jealousy toward them, his generosity to them. Now he grows even bolder. He enumerates his sufferings for them. And he tells them all the things that he went through to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. Again, he doesn't like to have to boast. Are they ministers of Christ? I am more. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. And in these next few verses, Paul is going to hold up his missing fingertips. He's going to reveal an amazing list of sufferings, many of which go unmentioned in the book of Acts. All we know from some of these episodes are what we learn from this list. Verse 24, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Only one such beating is recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 16. Once I was stoned. This is mentioned in Acts 14 and again in Galatians 6. He was stoned with rocks and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. Only one shipwreck is mentioned in the New Testament in Acts chapter 27, but it happened to him three times. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. This was the result of persecution from the enemy. But he also suffered from the execution of his ministry. He says, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. He had endured it all to get them the gospel. And to top it off, The icing on the cake that was Paul's ministry, verse 28. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And this may have been Paul's most relentless stress. It was a concern that he carried daily. In all his waking moments, the health of the churches weighed on his mind and heart. All other issues were secondary to what he calls my deep concern. And as a pastor, I can tell you, here's where I know a little of Paul's heart. Even on my day off, I'm not off. I'm still thinking about you. I'm thinking about the folks that constitute this church. It too is my deep concern. Verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? Paul got emotional when he heard of a believer that was being taken advantage of or wounded in some way. He says, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. And here is the surefire way to prove one's apostleship. 
You don't count the number of souls that you've led to Christ. You don't count the churches that you've started. You count your sufferings. If you want to look and see the legitimacy of a man's ministry, show us your scars. That's what you should say. It's not being a star, but it's scars that prove a person's legitimacy. Well, he ends in verse 31. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. And he gives an example as proof. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall and escaped from his hands. Now again, Paul has been boasting. So what experience does he use to illustrate the pinnacle of his success? I mean, how does he want to top off his resume here? (laughs) Preaching in Athens. Churches planted in Asia. How about a sneaky exit out of Damascus? He was lured from the wall like a baby in a basket. Not exactly a flattering picture that you'd want for your promotional packet. Here's Paul's point. The false teachers said that they were chosen because of their exceptionalness. Paul said the opposite. He was nothing special. And yet God used him according to his grace. What kind of leader do you want to follow? A guy full of pride? We're a God dependent on God's grace and His Spirit. Would you rather follow an Ivy League prima donna or a fellow worker with missing fingertips?